Um, so what, what I want to do at the start is to say to you that there are some different approaches uh, to looking at, at Genesis, particularly Genesis, the early chapters, and especially chapter 1, just to give you a little bit of background of that, because I think that it's important that we understand them all. Now, these are not the only approaches to Genesis, but I think uh, these are important. And as we begin this, I, I want to build as we work our way through. So first of all, to say that uh, there are many who would open up the book of Genesis and they'd say, well, we need a literalist understanding of Genesis chapter 1. And by literalist, I mean we, we effectively take every word here at face value. That is, the, the word relates to a reality. And so when it says, for example, uh, that there are six days, then it means what it says. We're talking about six days. What is a day? A day is a 24-hour period. Uh, and therefore, what we find in Genesis chapter 1 is a particular six, 24-hour period to describe the beginnings of the creation. Now, that's a literalist understanding. And uh, from this, there are all sorts of different uh, ideas that would flow from it uh, in terms of how you read not only this part of the Bible, but other parts of the Bible, how you understand the chronology of the scriptures, as you look at the genealogies and so on with Adam right through uh, his descendants right down, of course, to the New Testament. Uh, there are some who would say you can actually date the age of the earth uh, from what we see here in Genesis 1 and the creation of the man and the woman, uh, who we then discover Adam and Eve in second chapter, and then you work through those chronologies. And you can work out that the earth is something like 6,000 years old. Some would say, well, there's possibly some missing generations, so maybe somewhere between six and 10,000 years. That's, that's taking these words in a literalist way. And there are some who would say, very, very strongly, this is the only way to understand it. But I want to suggest to you that if we only understand it this way and don't pick up on the things I'm going to say next, then we will misunderstand it. Now, I'm not saying that we're not dealing with these things. We can come back to that. But if we stop there, then we're prone to misunderstanding. And I think there are some difficulties. We've got to acknowledge there's some difficulties with a simply literalist understanding of Genesis chapter 1. For example... Uh, in day one, the light is created. But our understanding of the light is that it's actually created by, by the sun and by the other stars. But they're not created until we get to day four, where you have the sun and the moon and the stars. What do you do with that? Um, day three, you've got vegetation, but you don't have the sun yet. And so how does photosynthesis work when, when you have that? Um, You've got a picture of, of day and night each time, but it's interesting because it starts with evening and morning. You have evening and the morning, the second day or the fourth day and so on. So I'm just saying, as you look at this, you can start to see patterns. Uh, you can start to wonder how some of these bits and pieces fit together. That's not to say that they don't, but there are things to have to work out with a literalist understanding. The, the next, uh, and I've used this language myself, uh, is what you might describe as not so much a literalist understanding, but a, a literary understanding is important. 
That is, what type of literature are we dealing with in Genesis chapter 1? Are we dealing with historical literature? Are we dealing with with poetic literature? Are we dealing with uh, a kind of epic uh, type of literature? What what is it that we've got in front of us and how would we know? Uh, You can read through this chapter and you'll see some wonderful patterns at work. That doesn't mean it's not literal, but it does at least mean that it's being portrayed with literary form, doesn't it? There was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day. It's very poetic in the way that it's put together. doesn't mean it's not talking about facts. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just saying we've got to recognise that this is, this is a very wonderful type of literature. And you'll see many, many patterns here. And God said, let there be, and it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the whatever number day, right? So you've got these sort of patterns that are at work there. Um, and when you look at the days, you actually find some, some really interesting patterns within. So in day one, you've got the creation of the light, go down three to day four, and you've got the things that fill the light, that is the sun and the moon and the stars. Go down to day two, and there you've got the, the water separated from the sea, Go to day five and you've got the things that fill the sea and fill the air, the birds and the fishes and so on. And then, of course, day three, you've got the dry ground, you've got the vegetation. And then on day six, you've got the animals that fill the dry ground. And, of course, the pinnacle being the creation of people. So there's structure, isn't there? You've got day one fitting with day four, two, five, three, six. doesn't mean it didn't happen chronologically like that. But we at least ought to notice that there's literary stuff and literal stuff. But I think, again, if we just look at a literalist understanding and a literary understanding, we will actually fail to get what God is teaching us. And we need to step a little bit harder and work a little bit more deeply to recognise that this isn't just um, an abstract piece of writing. It doesn't stand on its own. Uh, You don't have just a a pamphlet called Genesis chapter 1. You've got the beginning of the account from God, Genesis 1, 2, 3, to 11, to 12, right through to chapter 50. And of course, then it continues into Exodus. And that continues right through the the books of Moses and, and the prophetic books and the writings and the Psalms and so on. And of course, then... For Christians, that continues into the New Testament, the second chapter of the Bible. What we're dealing with here is actually part of Scripture. The Jews treat it as part of of God's holy word. Christians treat it as part of God's holy word. And therefore, what we're dealing with isn't simply the word of man, it's the word of God. There's a divine authority behind this. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. And, And... What we see when we look at what the rest of Scripture says about this is that this is what the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of Moses. So Moses is given authorship of the first five books of the Bible by the Bible. And I think there you've got the most important principle for understanding any part of Scripture. And it's critical when we look at Genesis chapter 1 to ask the question, what does the Bible do with the Bible? So what does the rest of the Bible do with Genesis chapter 1. And so as you read through the rest of the book of Genesis, 
How is this kind of laying a foundation and, and what is built upon the foundation? You come to the book of Exodus and there are references back to Genesis. Uh, particularly when you get to the Psalms. The, the Psalms kind of ooze the creation and, and so many literary and literal links back to Genesis chapter 1 in some of the prophets. And then when you get to the New Testament, of course, Jesus says, Hadn't you not, have you not read what, what, what the Holy Spirit said and refers to Genesis 2, for example, man and woman? Now, we need to see how the Bible handles the Bible. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to look at Genesis 1 through to Genesis 3. And then in week 7, we're going to look at Revelation 22. Uh, why are we skipping all the bit in between? Because we don't have enough time. But why are we jumping right to Revelation chapter 2? Because as you read it, you'd wonder whether you were listening to Genesis chapter 1 revisited. And you'd be right. The, the, the bookends of the Bible, Genesis 1, Revelation 22, and all that takes place in the middle. You see, it's one story. It's actually his story. History. What we're dealing with here is dripping with the foundations of life. And, and we come to understand so much of God and life as we look at this. And, and I want to just tease out a number of themes. And some of them will be very quick because there will be issues that we come back to and we, we spend a whole week on. But let's just work through some of these things. Um, I hope you're still with me. I hope I haven't kind of turned anybody off just yet. Um, first thing to observe is the blatant obvious. Right? Um, there's always a risk when things get sophisticated that you miss the obvious. And the obvious thing here is what? Well, it's that you're dealing with the fact of creation. This world was created. It's been brought into existence. It's easy to overlook that. And before anything that exists existed, there was God. In fact, there are 34 verses in Genesis chapter 1. There are 35 references to God. So you want to ask the question, what's Genesis chapter 1 about? Statistical analysis, it says about God. That's what it's about. About the one who was there from the very beginning. In the beginning, God. That's all there is in the beginning. Just God. In the beginning, God. And what did God do? God created. God brought something that did not exist into existence. Now, I'm going to do this a little bit through this talk, but uh, bear with me and don't worry about flipping around the Bible fast. Um, I'm going to jump across to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, where we get a commentary on the fact of creation. Let me read this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by God's command that what was seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, there's something very unique about the creation in Genesis 1. We, we often talk about people creating things, don't we? 
In fact, there's a very creative man who lives in Bonnie Hills. Uh, If you've not met him, I encourage you to go and meet him and spend some time watching him create. His name's Rod Page. Uh, He works at Crystalline Pottery. You've probably seen the sign if you've not been there. How many of you have been to Crystalline Pottery? Um, Do yourself a favour and go because this guy takes porcelain clay and he mixes in various minerals and he superheats it in such a way that it does what nature seems to do and that is creates crystals that are unique. And so you'll get three or four pots. They'll be the same basic colours, but all the crystals will form their own patterns. Now, I think that's probably one of the most creative things I've seen in Bonnie Hills, but it's not what we're talking about here. Because he does not create out of nothing. And that's what God does. There is nothing there, and God says, let there be, and something comes into being out of nothing. What Rod does, very cleverly, is takes clay and takes minerals and, and fashions them into a wonderful shape and then fires them up and it comes out with something that is creative but it's not the creation that we're talking about here. So the fact of creation is creation, what, what we, uh, the Latin is ex nihilo, out of nothing. The second thing that's really obvious here is that there's a distinction between the creator and his creation. Now, there are all sorts of ancient views of how the world came into being, and there are all sorts of different religions that have their ideas as to how the world came into being. Some see that uh, two of the gods procreated and and the world was given birth. Uh, Others will talk about um, some uh, massive fight and, and warfare that took place amongst the gods and And this was the spoils. There are all sorts of different ideas, but the Bible's idea is really clear. That is, God the Creator speaks and a separate thing that is not Him, it is His creation, comes into being. So it's not a procreation from God to another thing which is a kind of sub-being of God. Now I think that's quite important because... It seems to be on the rise, this kind of Eastern pantheistic idea. By pantheistic, I mean God in all things. That We look at the trees, you look at the whales, you look at the sky, you look at the, the beach, you look at, at the rainforest, you look at... And, and there is all God, right? That's, that's not God. That's what God has made. And, and the Bible's view is not that God is a part of the creation... No, the radical thing is that God actually chooses around about AD 0 or BC 0, you know, at the time of Jesus to become part of his creation. Now, that is just extremely radical. It wouldn't be at all radical if everything was God or if everything was a part of God, if we could see a bit of God in everything. But that's not the Bible's view. And... To take something of, of, of the, uh, the gloss of this, if you will, that means that we are made beings. We're manufactured. We're actually a product. God has made us. He's manufactured us. We, we are something that he's created, made, manufactured, and, and that brings the whole notion of purpose 
and meaning and significance. You see, if, if we weren't created, if we just are, then what are we? We are a random equation of time plus matter plus chance. And there's no meaning in that. There's no purpose in that. That's just nature, red in tooth and claw. That's, that, that's blind. That's meaningless. But not if we've been created. See, when you make something, there's an intention. There's design. There's purpose. And we've been made by God for a purpose. Now, we're, gonna, we're actually going to pause on the creation of humanity uh, in a little week. And, and that brings us to the next point, the focus of creation. If you were to read through uh, Genesis 1 to 2, 3, and think, where is the focus in all of this? I think that, that from a, a literary point of view, you'd be able to detect that there are two points that stand out, two points of difference. So you'd be reading through in, in the beginning and then God said, let there be, God said, let there be, God said, let there be, and 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 I've got down right to verse 28, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, or man in our image. So there, there's something different here, and, and I think it, it's a little bit like, okay, you, you've got this wide camera angle, Going across day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. Let's pause on day five. Let's, let's uh, sorry, day six. Let's, let's zoom in. Let us make man in our image. And then when we get to chapter two, uh, we're going to come at it from a different camera angle and, and see the creation of Adam and then of Eve. Right? So the whole, from a literary point of view, the creation of the people stands out. And, and when you dig into the detail of this, it's extraordinary. Because in all of the vast creation that God has made, and we still don't know how big that is. We've still got no idea how big the creation is. And, and in all the creation God has made, and we still don't know how microscopic it is. We don't know how big it is, we don't know how small it is. In all of that... God has made something in his image, mankind, male and female. We are made in God's image, and, and that's a massive thing. And we'll see when we look at this section in a little bit more detail, and I think from memory, I've put the program on the back of your, your sheets. Yet yeah, I don't get to do that. Jordan will be doing that next week. Uh, I'm sorry, but I can't be with you because I've... I've got to go up to Mackay and speak at the half-time break of the, um, the Wallabies England game. It's a long way to go to speak for 10 minutes, but anyway, someone had to do it. Um, <laughs> there'll be other things going on as well. Okay. Um, so, a special creature, but the other thing that stands out, I, I think really, and we didn't read it, is the seventh day. Because the seventh day is different. Um, by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. What do you notice about that? Well, the pattern has been broken. There's no, it, there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. 
Um, There's actually nothing new that comes about. Um, You have God resting. Why is God resting? Is he tired? No, he chooses to rest. Um, God doesn't need to rest. It's not that, hey, I had a big week. Well, what did you do that week? I just made the entire universe and everything that dwells in it. It's not that. God is choosing to rest. And we'll discover when we dig into the nature of rest that here's another massive Bible theme that doesn't really get fulfilled until we're in heaven. So there's some big stuff there, and we're going to come back to both of those, a week on each, the special creature, the special day. We see some wonderful things about the order of creation. Um, It's a picture of of chaos being turned into the cosmos. Uh, You've got in in verses 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then in each day, what you see happening is God bringing order out of chaos. And, and often by separating things into parts. So that he separates the, the light from the darkness. He separates the water from the, from the other water, the sky from the sea. He separates the land from, from the, uh, the dry land, from the water. And, and so on. And, and then he gathers all the different bits and pieces that are to go in his creation. So it's very ordered. It's very understandable. Uh, he takes something which is formless and empty and, and is dark. And he shapes it. He orders it. He, he separates. He fits out. He, he lights things up. He gives it structure. He gives it purpose. And what I think he does is he makes our world understandable. He actually creates a world that has, I don't like saying this word, but you'll know what I mean, that has natural laws. God, God creates something that you can, you can study and, and you can see things and anticipate what's going to happen next because of the things being ordered and organised in, in the world that God has made. I think what we've got in, in these verses is the foundation for science. The, the reason that scientists can come up with theorems and test them, the, the reason that, that quantum chemists and physicists can come up with formulas to explain things is because God has made a formed, meaningful, understood or understandable world. And we'll probably never get to the end of it. So there is our basis for science, our basis for, here's a good word for you, epistemology. How can we know things? That's what it means. It's just a really smart aleck word for how can you know things. And if you want to sound humble about that, just talk about epistemic humility. right? Um, If we're just time plus matter plus chance, then who knows what's going to happen next? But God knows. Um, it reveals God to us, doesn't it? The creation. Um, it, it, it's actually another big interest of the Bible. Uh, how the creation itself reveals the creator. Um, you get some wonderful psalms. Uh, which psalms point to the creation showing the creator? Yeah, I need a number. I'm not sure what number that is. Psalm 19 is a good example, I think. Psalm 8. Um, yeah, there's probably lots of them out there. 
Uh, but, but you also get this wonderful little summary verse, I think, in Romans chapter 1. And there are big implications that flow from this verse. Um, and I think this is the verse that gives rise to the modern missionary movement, really. So look at uh, Romans. Well, I'll read it out. Don't worry about looking it up. In Romans 1 verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Let me just highlight that again. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, that is, you're not looking at God, but God's invisible qualities are visible through what God has made, his creation. So you can see that he's eternally powerful and has divine nature. And that is clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The creation testifies to a creator. You walk into an art gallery, you look at the pictures, and you go, what an extraordinary artist to produce that. Well, friends, that's the mindset that we should have as we look at the great canvas that God has made. If, if you were privileged to be able to look into the Hubble telescope and to see things that are squillions of light years away, God made that. If you're out in the surf on a beautiful day and, and the waves are perfect and, and, and the sun's warming you, he made that. If you're looking at the impact of genetic science to understand the, the sequencing of DNA so as to see what it is that goes right in people and what it is that goes wrong in people. That incredible, microscopic picture, he made that. You, you look at the, the beauty of this world, it's, it testifies to the fact that there's a creator. And you might not have ever opened a Bible. You might never have heard the name of Jesus. But the Bible tells us that the creation itself testifies that there is a God who's made it. And in fact, that chapter then goes on to say, for, for all those who say there is no God, what they're doing is they're actually suppressing the truth that they know to be true. And they might be suppressing it so hard that they actually believe that there is no God. Or they might know deep down that there is a God, but they don't want to have anything to do with him. Well... Purpose? Yes, there's purpose built into the creation. It's not mindless. And there's some great verses there, including the one that I opened up tonight with in Acts 17, that we've been made to know God. Now, I'm not going to spend a great deal more time on the next two points, the goodness of creation. I uh, leave you to look up those things. There's, a, there's some wonderful verses there that talk about how God has, has made this earth and how it testifies to his goodness. Um, I, I think one of the dangers of increasingly urban society um, and Western society is, is that we forget the link between the creator and the creation. The people in our society who are probably most aware of that are the farmers who've been having to shoot animals 
don't see a blade of grass on their properties and are absolutely sick to death of going to the bank and being told there's no money available to you. They're the people who know because it doesn't matter how clever they are, they could have a PhD in agriculture, they can't produce rain. And, and they know that God is the provider. I, I think we forget, don't we, because we think the woolies and coals are the providers and we can just go and get whatever we need. But we depend upon God. It's interesting, I don't know if you saw this, but during the week uh, in this community, I don't know how far this goes, but uh, is it the, the Courier, the Camden Haven Courier? Front page, talking about having a rain dance. Um, I don't know if they had a rain dance or not, it's raining. But it, it struck me that you can talk about having a rain dance at, at a local show, but to say we should all get down on our knees and pray probably wouldn't make the front page of the paper. Um, all right, so it's, it's a good creation. God's made it good. But of course, there's evidence to the contrary, isn't there? So for all of the incredible design of the human body, things go wrong. And you get things like cancer. For all of the wonderful scientific advancements, uh, the technology gets used for warfare and the destruction of lives. <coughs> Uh, for all of the incredible uh, agricultural genius that people have with being able to genetically modify plants and all this sort of stuff, we're, we're still destroying our planet rapidly. So there is a crisis in the creation. And I think the Bible talks about this in two directions. That is the disregard for the creation, that we treat it as something to trash, and if I can put it in these terms, the over-regard for creation that worships it as if it were God. And as Christians, neither option. We need to understand that it's God's creation. He's created us to look after it, to care for it, and to use it and to enjoy it. And we need to find that balance right. Um, but let me finish with these words, because I think we don't want to lose the agent of the creation. In, in these uh, opening words of the Bible, we could overlook the fact that on ten occasions it says these words, and God said, let there be. And there was. So how did the creation come into existence? God spoke. That's how it was brought into existence. God in his words, is so powerful that he can bring something that does not exist into existence. Now, what does the Bible make of the fact that God created by speaking? Does it make anything of it? Well, yes, it does. And I want to take you on a quick journey uh, via Psalms to the New Testament. So, first of all, Psalm 33 and verse 6 is a wonderful little commentary on the creation. Psalm 33, verse 6. It says here, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Um, we might tend to think of, of word as simply metaphor or you know, a literary expression. You know, and God said, and there was. And God said, and there was. And God said, and there was. But 
Psalms causes us to pause and go, hang on, no. It was actually by his word that the heavens were made. It's actually by his breath that the starry host comes into existence. God's word and God's breath. Now let me, let me give you an image here of the Trinity for a second. How can you know me? Uh, you can know me by hearing my words that talk about me. Or talk about other things and you get to know what I value. All right? How do I communicate the word to you? By my breath. Passing over my vocal cords. So me reveals myself to you by words. It is the word that is breathed out to you. Now, I don't know if that image is perfect. I don't suspect it is. But I think what we see going on with God is that, is that God makes himself known in his word, which is his expired word, his, his spirited word. But you get a picture in the creation of, of God being word and spirit. So God is doing this and he does this by his word. And in verse 2, the spirit of God is hovering above the waters. So I, th- I think by the time you get to verse 3, you've got, the, you've got the Trinity, you just don't know you've got it. Right? You've got God, word, spirit. And then in Psalm 33, verse 6, the, the heavens are made by God's word, by the breath of his mouth, that is the spirit of his mouth. But it doesn't get made explicit until we get to the New Testament. And so I take you to probably what's very well known when we think of Genesis 1. We often think of John 1. Because it's almost like John had Genesis in mind when he wrote it. John chapter 1. We're nearly there, by the way. Thanks for working hard with me tonight. In the beginning was the Word. That's interesting, isn't it? In the beginning, God. Now, we're starting the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word. Well, who's this Word? Well, the Word was, was with God and the Word was God. Which? Was he God or was he with God? Well, yes. Um, he was with God in the beginning. And then listen to this. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. You see... The Word was with God in the beginning. So you've got God and the Word. But the Word actually was God. So you've got God and the Word and you've got God being the Word. And everything that was made and nothing that wasn't made comes about through the Word. Now that kind of makes sense of what we read in Genesis 1, doesn't it? And God said, let there be, and it was. And what it says in Psalm 33. But the radical thing is when you get down to verse 14 of John 1. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. See, think back through that. God takes on human form. The word takes on flesh. The eternal word becomes a man. And what does that mean? Well, that 
man, having not yet become a man, is the man through whom the whole of the creation was created. I'll give it to you in other terms. So, the beginning of Hebrews. Lest you think that John's just playing around here with words. Um, the beginning of Hebrews says much the same thing. I used to have Hebrews in my Bible. Yep, still there. That's good. Um, Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Um, let's Don't worry too much about that. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the Son, Jesus, is the revelation of God, whom he appointed heir of all things, that is, all things have been made for him to receive, he's getting it as the inheritance, and through whom also he made the universe. So God made the universe through the Son, that is, through Jesus. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, i.e. the perfect image of God, which we're going to hear about, And he sustains all things by his powerful word. That is, he keeps it all going. So when we think of Jesus, the man from Galilee, are we thinking of the one who was there before the creation of the world and through whom the world was made and who keeps it going and for whom the world has been made for? One more reference. Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. And uh, verse 15 to 17. You used to have Colossians as well. Yep, it's there. Colossians 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. So that's for next week, right? But we see the perfect image of God, that's Jesus, the Son. And he's the firstborn over all creation. Now this is important because the JWs, they love to say that Jesus is not God because he's He's born, he's firstborn. But he's not the firstborn of creation, he's the firstborn over creation. Um, and the idea of being firstborn is, is that you get everything. You know, who's, who's the first child in your family? Gee, who's not? Bad luck, guys, you got nothing, right? That was the way it used to be, you got nothing. The firstborn was the heir. He stood to inherit. Jesus stands to inherit the universe. He's the firstborn over all creation. But then get this, verse 16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That is, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, this is mind-blowing. I mean, we need a picture of Jesus, a mental concept of Jesus that is big enough to have created the whole world, keep the whole world going, inherit the whole world in the end. That's big enough for everything in the whole of creation to be for him. Now, this is really where the rubber hits the road tonight. And I want to finish with this because... What we discover here is that the purpose of the creation of this whole universe is for Jesus. That's what it's for. See, someone might ask you, why did God create the universe? I created it for Jesus, for his son. That's that's why he created it. He created it for Jesus. What's, What's this whole world about? It's been made for Jesus. 
Um, you and me, we've been made for Jesus. I spoke at a wedding in January, didn't I, Leon? And, and I, I talked about Leon and I talked about Laura and, you know, two surfies and, and free spirits and obviously in love with each other. And many people would say they, they were made for each other. But I made the point that they weren't. They're not made for each other. They're made for Jesus, both of them. So are you, so am I. We've been made for Jesus. Now, we've got to get this right. We've got to get this clear because if we are made, that is, if we're created, if we've been manufactured, to put it in that language, then we have purpose and the purpose can only be defined by the maker. And the maker is Jesus. We've been made by him and for him. So if, if you're there living, trying to work out what your purpose is, trying to find meaning, trying to find direction, wanting to make something of your life, stop. Just do what most blokes never do. Read the instructions. Because you've been made for a purpose. right? You've been made for Jesus. And you won't find your purpose by chasing around, trying to make something of your life. And yet so many people do exactly that and come up empty. You will know your purpose once you realise for whom you've been made and how you've been made. So you can stop chasing things that will give you meaning and purpose. You don't have to make it up and ultimately you can't. 